He said, but whoso keepeth this word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Turn over to chapter 4, if you will. Verse 12, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. A little later down in the chapter, verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So we'll deal with perfect love is going to bring perfect righteousness. Amen. You may be seated this afternoon. But we're going back to the beginning of the, of the chapter. And I, I'm probably just going to deal with chapter 1 here this afternoon. I want, to, I want to share this with you as we get to these verses and see what, how that this correlates. This idea of perfecting love. And John will use this word, repeat it over and over and over again. But I want you to see how this is in the midst of his theme. Now, first of all, before I, I will, I will go back to a verse, uh, and, and to chapter one. But I, I want to pull out a few verses because John explicitly will state several times in this epistle his purpose for writing. We don't have to doubt or guess about why John is writing this epistle. Let's just pull out a few that he talks about writing and, and, and gather a few things from these verses. Chapter one and verse four. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now some folks, their joy in Christ is up and down. Their joy comes and goes. But our joy should be full. Full joy is a satisfying joy. Full joy is a joy that doesn't leave you looking for something more. Doesn't leave you searching for something else. If your joy is full... It can't get any greater. All right, it's complete. Now, that doesn't mean that, that it might not at some time expand as you expand, but the fact of the matter is if your joy is full, then you are not left empty. You're not left looking for something more. So John is going to write, and as we tie these things together with love and righteousness, only as those two are there, love is in you producing a righteous lifestyle, only as you live right are you going to be happy. You can never be joyful in sin. You can never be joyful when you love the world. It's just that way. Chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. He's going to write things so their joy is full. He's going to write so that they do not sin. Imagine that. How would that everybody, every pastor would preach that his people do not sin? I wish that every father would care that his children do not sin. That every husband would care that his wife did not sin. 
that here a purpose in our life is that you and I might abstain from sin. Because sin is that which is contrary to God. And if you love God, you want that which is in, con in uh, conjunction and in agreement with God. So he writes that we do not sin. He mentions in verse 12 of this chapter. I'm sorry, verse 7. Brethren, I write. I'm just looking at the verses that talks about what he says he's writing. I write no new commandment unto you. But an old commandment which you had from the beginning. Now I'll deal with these verses a little more in detail. It appears a contradiction, but it's not. Verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He tells us in my writing, I'm writing something that's not new, and yet it is new. It almost seems like he's contradicting himself. He said, I'm not writing anything new to you. Then he turns around and says, I'm writing something new to you. Oh, wait a minute, John, which is it? It's both. It's not new because it's still the old commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's Old Testament, my friend. When Jesus was asked that question, the New Testament did not exist. When Jesus was asked the question, and I read from our text this morning in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They were talking about the Old Testament. What is the greatest commandment that comes out of that book of the law, out of Genesis through Deuteronomy? Tell us, summarize all of the books of the law in one commandment. And Jesus said the first and great commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, as so and thy mind and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is the second commandment on these two hang all the law and the prophets and so that's the old commandment but what is it making new it's not a new commandment in the sense that it's a different commandment it's the same commandment but a new dynamic Ooh, hallelujah we got the same command but now what is different we've seen that commandment actually fulfilled in somebody we knew it in the old testament but we can never find anybody that could do it right. right. We had it. It was given to Moses, but men are always failing. But somebody came, hallelujah, who fulfilled the commandment, who was the very essence of love, and he came and lived and dwelt among us. And I'm telling you what, it's a new commandment because there's a new dynamic that enables us to live by the very commandment that God has had from the beginning. So he's writing to merge the old and the new. He's writing to show us that the old is there and it's still the same moral code. But now there's a new way that it's going to be fulfilled in your life. Verse 12, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him and is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Now he is telling us the reason he's writing and he names three groups of, of people that I should say or really uh, one group of people and that they're all saints but three different stages of growth. That's what you have. When you're in the church, you're in the church. You're either saved or lost. You're either part of the body of Christ or you're not a part of the body of Christ. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. You're either in the church or you're out of the church. There is no middle ground between righteousness and unrighteousness, between being saved and being lost. Understand that. You are a saint abiding in Christ or you are a sinner in the kingdom of darkness. No middle ground. Now you're one or the other. 
We don't like it that cut and dry, but that's just the way that it is, one or the other. But there are, here he mentions three stages of growth. There is the first stage, which is little children. And he said, I write to you. He talks about how he writes to the little children because your sins are forgiven you for your name's sake. And he mentions them again. Uh, that they are, they are mentioned in the end of verse 13. I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. This becomes the thing that is impressed upon the mind of a, a babe in Christ. The first and most important thing when you get saved and your early stage of growth is this. That God is your Father and He's forgiven you of your sin. And you have been reconciled to Him. You're that prodigal who has come home. You're the one who woke up in the hog pen and said, what in the world? You came to your senses and said, this makes no sense. I'm going back to the Father's house. I'm going back and tell him I'm not worthy to be a son. Make me a servant because the servants have it better in my Father's house than where I am living here in the hog pen. And so he says, I write to you because you have that knowledge that you know you're a child of God. You're in Father's house. And your sins have been forgiven. You young men, the, the second stage will be young men. There's first children, then young men. He said, I'm writing to you now. So he, he, he purposely sections out these groups, uh, these, these levels of maturity in the church. And he lets them know that I'm writing to you for, uh, because you have to possess something. He wasn't writing to sinners. He didn't mention anything in this book that he writes to sinners. He's writing, first we said, the joy can be full. Second, that they do not sin. He writes to merge the old and new uh, and the sense of the commandment. And then he says, I write to you young men. And he talks about because you're strong and you've overcome the wicked one. He mentions that because you've overcome the wicked one. He mentions that you're strong in verse 14. I've written again to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Your, your first level of maturity is, is a, a conviction and a knowledge that your sins are forgiven and that you are a child of God. But the second level of maturity when you reach this place now, now you're strong. The word of God, you've read God's word it abides in you you have learned through God's word and through the Holy Spirit how to overcome the devil you've learned how to overcome temptation you've learned how to conquer and to avoid the tactics of the enemy you have come to the place in your life that basically you are a very difficult target for the devil an almost impossible target that newborn babe in Christ is an easy target yet they're only caught up with the idea that they're a son of God and they've been forgiven of their sin but they haven't yet learned how to overcome the tactics. They have not yet seen all the sneaky ways in which the devil will try to sideline them and try to come and hit them. But the young man that's strong, but he's been through some fire at this point. He's built some inner strength and conviction and he has went through some troubles and trials and now he knows how to overcome the devil. You cannot live in righteousness until you learn how to overcome the devil. And then he says, I've written to you fathers because you've known him that's from the beginning. Now I'm going to talk about that a little later. But there's a knowledge in him. This is the idea of men that have persevered. You're not knocking these guys out. They're called fathers because they are now reached to the place that they can reproduce. They not only can, they have. He calls them fathers. He doesn't call them old men. He calls them fathers. 
When you're called a father, it means you brought people into the kingdom. You are now not only in as a child of God. You are not only strong as a child of God. You have brought other people to be a child of God. What you need in your life is, first of all, to establish yourself in Christ as a child of God and know that you are free. Secondly, you must grow in strength so you can overcome the devil but through the word of God and through the power of the Holy Ghost and so the devil cannot defeat you. And thirdly, from that point, once you're strong, you now are able to reach out and to bring people into the kingdom of God and show them the way and give an example to them. You're a father unto them. You can birth them into the kingdom. Glory. Your goal is to be a father. Your goal is to be one who can reach others for Jesus Christ and bring them into the... You are not saved so that you can be satisfied. You are saved so you can be productive. Everything in God's kingdom must reproduce. If you do not reproduce, we die. This church is at the place where it must reproduce more. We have reproduced. We have had somewhat of a harvest, but it's time for a greater level of reproduction in this church because reproduction is necessary for the, for the uh, growth and for the maintenance of the church. We must have that. If you don't have it, you die. You've got to reproduce. But you've known him that's from the beginning. We'll talk about that phrase a little bit later. Verse 21. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. If you don't know truth, want truth, and love truth, you won't like this book. Okay? If you don't know it, and you don't love it, okay, and it's not in you, you won't like this book. It'll eat you up. It'll tear you up. It'll burn your hide. You will not like it. He writes again in verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. John is not going to back down. He is going to say some things about the contradictors, the gainsayers, those that are, are preaching false doctrine. He is not going to come out particularly and name names. That may not be necessary. But buddy, if you're sitting in that church and you hear this letter read on a Sunday morning when the church gathers, we got a letter from the Apostle John. John the Aged is written unto us. Yes, and John, we've got a letter. And I'm telling you, buddy, when John writes this thing, he's going to make some statements. And there have been some folks among them that have said, oh, it's okay. We can live in sin and have fellowship with God. John's going to flat out call them liars. There's some folks going to have their eyebrows raised on that day when that letter is, that letter is read and it's going to be tough. Yeah. And John's specifically tough. I've written concerning those that seduce you. Yeah. Yeah. He's also going to tell because they've had some folks that have left. They've had some folks in the church and I think some folks are grieving over them. John isn't grieving. He said they went out from us because they weren't of us. Right. So John is not going to cut any corners. He's not going to make it smooth. You've got some folks trying to seduce you, take you down the wrong road. And I'm telling you, some of them were sitting in the pews, if I could put it that way, when this church, when this letter is read and it burnt their hides. Right. Oh, we don't like that kind of direct preaching, but it was direct that Sunday morning whenever they got the letter from the Apostle John. All right. Now let's go over to uh, one more verse of Scripture. Uh, chapter 5, the last chapter in verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of 
God. That's interesting. He said, I write to you that believe on the name. And then he turns around and says, I'm writing so you can believe on the name. Isn't that what he said? Take that, take that section, that middle section out just for a moment. Listen to it again, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Yeah. I am writing to you that believe on the name of the Son of God so that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. Yeah. What's that say? I'll tell you what it says. John acknowledges, I'm writing to the folks who are true blue. Yeah. You have placed your faith in the name of the Son of God. But I want to tell you what. Some of them, their faith has been shaken. Oh yeah, there's a lot to shake your faith today. There's a lot to make you question whether you're right or whether you're not. Oh yeah, that's what he said. So that you might know that you have eternal life. If you're not, isn't this what we're having an issue with today? We're looking around, we see churches, they say, we don't have to live that way, we can live this way, we can live this way. And then we're beginning to wonder, am I preaching the right thing or not? Am I living this thing the way? Am I really saved? Am I, am I on the right road? Am I really believing? And John says, I'm writing to you because you really do believe. But I'm right to undergird that belief. I'm writing so you can continue in that belief. I'm writing so that when you get done here in my letter, you're going to stand up and say, oh, yeah, I'm on the right way. Woo, glory to God. Oh, yes. And John the apostle has confirmed it. And this came right straight from an apostle. He said it straight. That's the way I live it. That's the way I believe it. Glory to God. I'm on the right road. I'm going to stick with this Jesus and I'm going to stick with this doctrine that I believe from the beginning. People today are being shaken in their faith and they're leaving in the droves and they're compromising by the hundreds in Christianity. And so this idea of love and righteousness is to you people who love God to strengthen you to keep that love in God. And that's what John is writing for. He writes to them so their joy can be fulfilled. I will tell you right now, compromise will diminish your joy. Right. When you look around you, it's so much junk. After a while, you just get kind of downhearted about it. You're like, man, you feel like you're alone. You yeah. feel like you're out here fighting this thing by yourself. And they can make you feel uh, like you're a bigot, like you're somebody who's holier than thou. Right. And you feel like you're better than everybody else. I don't feel like I'm better than everybody right. else, but there's a standard. Glory <laughs> to the Lamb. Right. Oh, hallelujah. There's a rule by which we are commanded to live and John says I'm writing hallelujah I want your joy to be fulfilled I want you to not sin I know that you're in levels of growth I want you to see that this old commandment and standard of holiness hadn't changed but we've got a new dynamic to satisfy glory to God and he said I want you to know I know those cats that are seducing you I'm writing you because you want the truth and I'm writing because you believe and I want that belief to be reinforced hallelujah Told someone the other day, here's what happens when you compromise. When you compromise and you water down the message, you'll win the compromising crowd. But you'll lose your best members. And so because we've been afraid to preach on certain things because of offending this crowd, we've lost the crowd over here that wanted to hear it. That's trying to still live it. And needed to be reinforced. Amen. And that's what we don't understand. Many of these preachers that got up 
and they catered to that compromising crowd. They kept the Jezebels, but they got rid of the ones that were pure and virtuous in their midst because they wasn't going to sit and listen to that kind of mess. Amen. All right, now watch this. We'll get a little bit here. I'm not going to hold you too long this afternoon. And uh, if you can hold on and make a good show of it, praise the Lord. We're going we're gonna to make some progress. Now watch this. I want to deal with the first chapter. Watch John's uh, inroad on this, how he begins. That which, here it is, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested unto us. Now, did you remember the last statement that John said? I've written unto you that believe on the name of Jesus Christ that you may know that you have eternal life. When John began, he said that at the end. He gave that purpose at the end. I want you in the end, this becomes the whole essence really of the book. He's writing to reinforce the faith and the knowledge that men have of God. And I want you that when you come out of this letter that you will not doubt where you stand. You will not question whether you're saved. And you will be able to see the difference between those who are and aren't. In your midst, when John got done with them, buddy, they knew who was saved and who was lost. Yes, sir. So, now John says, that which was from the beginning. Do you remember what he said? I just told you about it. He said to the fathers, you've known him that's from the beginning. What is that which is from the beginning? Oh, we go back to John's gospel in the very first word, uh, first verse of John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is he that's from the beginning? None other than Jesus Christ. Oh, now that's important because you got, you got folks here in this thing and Gnosticism. They believe in this series of emanations and creations that have come from the beginning and that there has been, there was this good God in the beginning and then this good God created a lesser God and this, that God created a lesser God until you finally got down to the God that created us and the God that created us was evil. And so they, they had this idea that that's why our flesh wants to do bad things. That's why we want to have uh, adulterous affairs. That's why we want to lie. That's why, you know, the flesh is drawn to this. Because the flesh is evil and it's kind of like this. There ain't nothing you can do about it. That's the way it was. That's just the way the flesh is. It's always evil. It can't be sanctified. You can't do anything with it because we've been created and the material world is evil. The material world is wicked because it was created by a wicked God, but your spirit's saved. And so what you've got, we, we got the same theology today. If the outside don't matter, it's only the inside that counts. Yeah. That was the same thing that John was dealing with. People that were basically preaching, your flesh can do whatever your flesh wants to do as long as your heart's right with God. And John's going to write to tell him it isn't happening. No. That doesn't fly in Christian circles right, and proper theological understanding. And then he's got this issue with those who are saying, because you got a real problem with that theology. What contradicts that kind of theology that says flesh is evil? we got one person that contradicts it real bad, and it's this guy named Jesus. And remember, he hadn't been that long dead when this letter's written. He'd been dead if this letter is written, let's say, even in the 90s. If this letter is written in the 90s, Jesus has been dead about 60 years. 
or passed off. He's, he's not dead. He's raised. Not dead. I understand that. But at least he left this world scene. Sixty years. John's alive and John saw him. Okay. There are folks that this that are alive that still saw Christ in the flesh. Woo. And you got a main problem, man, because in him there was no sin. <laughs> there was no guile found in his mouth. Nobody ever convinced him of wrongdoing. You got a big problem with your theology because there's a man that has lived in flesh and he lived it right and he lived it without sin. And you got a problem with this theology that says you can sin a little bit every day and it doesn't matter how you live your life and it's only the outside. And so they have to explain Christ away. Well, he wasn't really a man. He really didn't come in the flesh. He only appeared to be in the flesh. And John said, I'll tell you what I think about those cats. They're antichrist. And then he comes out and he begins his epistle. You've known him, speaking of Jesus Christ, who is from the beginning. (laughs) In other words, the God that made us is the God in the beginning. Not some God that was created later down the road. The God that was in the beginning is the God that created us. And that's the one we know. That's the one that lived among us. That's the one that lived it right. That's the example we follow. That's the promised one and the one that's coming again. That's going to be John's thread. But let's just think about that for a moment. What a wonderful statement. You have known him that's from the beginning. What does that say? This word beginning is a word, it's also translated principality. It is, uh, it is the idea of a first being first in rank, being first in time. It's the idea when you you talk about a a principality, you talk about a governorship that's over something. He's first. It's kind of like that saying, the buck stops here, you know. And and John is saying, you know him that's first. You know him that started it all. You know him that was from the beginning. Now, what's the importance? Let's just take that. Let's take that just for a moment, if you could, and put that on some practical level for us. What do you, what's the significance of him that's from a beginning? If I take that automobile out there and I say, you know what, how did that automobile begin? And you might go over here to the plant and you, you go to the, to the, to the plant that, that uh, manufactures these automobiles and you see the, the finished product that comes off the, the assembly line and you begin to follow that back. And when you follow that back, you get back here and you find you a little boat that started. Somebody started this thing by putting up two pieces of metal together and, and two things came together and bolted this thing. And, and you might say, well, that's where it begins. And the guy said, no, that's not where it began. And then he shows you a set of plans. And he said, no, this is where it began. You see these set of plans? Uh, This is the beginning of this automobile. In other words, it starts with an image. Here is an image and a plan. But I got to tell you something. That isn't where it started. No, sir. Somebody had to draw that plan. That plan began in a mind. And you go back and you find that behind the automobile was a living being, if you will. And there was a mind that thought that up, that, that felt a need. There was a need that said somewhere, hey, 
you know what? There's a need. We can meet that. We can do that. And he began to design in his mind using pen and paper, whatever, uh, 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 an automobile. And so here becomes the beginning. What's your point? When you get to that place at the beginning, then you understand something about not only the design, but the designer. Oh, yes. And you understand that he had a purpose. Now you're going to know the purpose of the automobile. You're not going to see just a bucket of bolts. You're going to see that here was why this came about. Here's why this was dreamed up. Here's why this man drew this plan. Here's the objective that he had. Here was the purpose of this automobile. Here was the need that presented itself. When you get back to the beginning, you understand purpose. You understand design. You understand what life is all about or what the object's all about. How much more with life if you can know him that's from the beginning. You'll know more about Jesus than more than he just died for your sins. You'll see in him the very purpose of existence and the very design of life because he's the designer. Hallelujah. So when he talked about those fathers that knew him from the beginning, they understood more than Jesus than that he died on the cross. They saw him in his perfection. They saw him in his design. They saw him in his whole purpose. The one who becomes a mature Christian and able to produce other Christians, the father, is the one that sees the panoramic view of Christianity. He's the one that sees it from its purpose and understands. This isn't about just getting your sins forgiven. This isn't about just talking about the death and resurrection. This is talking about the creator of the world. This is talking about the one who came to fulfill the very purpose and show us uh, this is what life is about. This is what life's design is. uh, And that's what the beginning's all about. And John says, I want you to know, fellas, what message we preached today wasn't born yesterday. It wasn't born in some back alley somewhere, in some religious discussion, in some committee. This came from the one who is from the beginning. Glory. And that's the one I'm preaching unto you today. Amen. Now watch what he does. You, you, you can give me just a few more moments. Watch what he does. Now he says about this one that's come from the beginning. We've heard him. We've seen him. I'm looking at verse 1. You with me? That which is from the beginning, we have heard. That means he spoke. We have seen him, which means he is visible with our eyes. And we've looked upon him. What's the difference between look upon and seen? Well, to seen is just you see. Yeah. When you look upon, we have a, we have a, a hillbilly. I don't know if you call it hillbilly. It is English. <laughs> But uh, we call it gawking. You understand what gawking means? Okay. It means you just sit there with your eyes glued and your mouth hanging open. Quit gawking. Yeah. You know. In other words, you're driving down the road, you know, and you just, your, eyes, your eyes just get caught up on something. And, you, and you're gawking, and you're just over there, and you ain't paying no attention to what you're doing. But John said, we just caught ourselves staring at him. Yeah. We did more than see him, seeing the miracles, but sometimes they just sat and stared at him, yeah. wow. studied him. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. He left him speechless so many times it isn't funny. The scripture says another way, behold him. We need to do some beholding. We take glances. We get glimpses. 
We look a little. We get a little touch. We need to take some time and gawk. We need to take some time and stare. We need to take some time and behold. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, just let me sit here and stare at you. Oh, I'm telling you, I've had some times uh, have become the richest times in prayer. Not when I ever prayed for anybody. Not when I was there even praying for myself. It's just when I got caught up with thinking about God. And in prayer and communion, I just gawked at him for a little bit. Hallelujah. And he rolled scripture through my mind. I began to think about his majesty, his transcendence, his glory, his life his power and it just filled my soul with wonder I say oh Jesus let us be able to look upon in other words the guy that's writing this epistle wasn't a Johnny come lately it's not second hand information he didn't read this in a book he got it first hand my ears heard my eyes saw I gawked at him and our hands have handled you aren't going to tell me, fella, he's just a spirit. Yeah, we, I touched him. Amen. I laid amen. on his breast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, my hands are, hey, we don't do it now, but in the east, I guarantee you, they walk down the road at times holding Jesus' hand. That wasn't considered funny in those days. I could see him walking. I could see him, John, walking down beside Jesus Christ, walking down the dusty road, just holding his hand. Glory. He wanted to be next to the master. Yes, that wasn't weird. That wasn't funny. There wasn't nothing sensual about it. It was just a closeness in hearts that are knit together. He's feeling the heartbeat of this one because I'm telling you, sometimes Jesus did some things you wondered if he was real and you had to go back and touch him. He's real. Woo! Glory. Even after his resurrection, he said, Come on, fellas. Come on over here and touch me. I'm real. Flesh and bones. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. I'm not a spirit. I'm alive. Hallelujah. You can put your hand in my side. You can touch me. Come on. He invites us to come close. I like that. God came among us and he didn't say keep your distance now. You all make sure you just reverence me and stay away. No, he said come on in here and lay hold of me. Come in here and let me hug you. Come let me hold your hand. Come let me touch you. John said he wasn't a spirit. He was flesh and blood among us. Hallelujah. He was real and I touched him. Woo. He said, this life that's from the beginning is manifest. We saw it. We bear witness and show to you. I'm showing to you this eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. This book substantiates the Trinity in several verses. And John will tell you throughout this epistle, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're Antichrist. That's pretty tight. But that's just the way it is. He makes it very clear that he distinguishes the Son, the Word, from the Father. He said this life was with the Father. That means he's not the Father. And he was manifested unto us. Now those are the side items. We'll try not to get bogged down. So he said that which we've seen and heard, declare. Here we go. Now you've got to watch his message. What does he say? The life appeared. The one that's from the beginning came visible among us. We heard him, we saw him, we gawked at him, we gazed upon him, and we touched him. Well, what did they hear? What did they see? What did they touch? Well, John says, hey, that which we've seen and heard declare we unto you. So here's the message. John said, this is what we heard, and this is what we saw, and we're going to declare this unto you. Now he tells us first the reason. 
We're going to declare this unto you so that you may also may have fellowship with us. Woo, glory to God. God, John is saying, listen, I want you to know something. I'm one of those that has heard and seen and gazed and touched. And he said, I want you to join our company. So I'm going to tell you what I saw and heard and gazed and touched so that you can have the same fellowship I have so you can be a part of the same company that I'm in. That's what John's telling them. And he said, truly our fellowship is with, note, the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He clearly distinguishes between Father and Son. Well, some might say, well, he doesn't mention the Spirit. It's okay, he doesn't have to. If you establish two persons in the Trinity, it ain't hard to get to the third. If you even establish two, you've defeated Unitarianism. You've defeated oneness because you've already admitted you've got plurality established. And once plurality is established, it's very quickly to understand the Spirit being the third person of the Godhead. So now, and these things we write unto you that joy may be full. Here's the message now, verse 5. So he's going to tell us what he's seen. This then is the message which we have heard of him. What did you hear, John? What did you see when you gazed upon him? What did you come away with? Here it is. You would think we're going to get some big dissertation. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When life was manifested, when the one from the beginning is manifested, and we, we listened to all that he said, we saw all that he did, we stared him down, we just, I mean, we pierced him, buddy. Yeah. Oh, we, you know, you ever get feeling uncomfortable when someone stares? How many of us, we get stares, someone stares at us? I've done that. You ever, you know, I've stared at people. You ever do that? But people intrigue me. They do. I, I, I feel like time I could go to a mall and just watch folks are the most entertaining thing in all the world. And, and to just, just watch them walk down to how they dress, how they act, how they look, what they do. People are funny. They're entertaining. But I mean, you get someone, and I try to be conscious of this, and, and, uh, and you get someone and they're doing something for you and all of a sudden they can't get it right and you're just staring at them. Yeah. And man, it puts the pressure on them. And then they get all nervous. And you, you, you ever told somebody, I can't do this when you're looking at me. Would you just go somewhere else? I can't do it like that. Quit looking at me. Ha! In other words, when you stare at somebody, it puts pressure on them. Hey, they stared at Jesus, and he never messed up. <laughs> oh, they stared at him. He never got nervous. They could just sit there and gawk at him. And you know what? He never got excited over it. It never bothered him. He never got flustered. He never got to the point, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Oh, no, everybody's watching me. What if I mess up? It didn't matter. He didn't mess up. And John says, now, I want to tell you something, folks. If I've stared at somebody and I've listened to somebody and I've seen somebody, you let me do that for three years constantly, day in and day out. And I near about guarantee I can find you a flaw somewhere. You do that with me. It won't take you three years. Come on, come on. You might do three minutes. <laughs> Just give me three minutes sometimes, three hours, three days. But three years. And here's what John says. This is his message. No flaw. No sin. 
No ill motive. No bad attitude. No lie. No hypocrisy. No pretense. No put on. No act. Nothing hidden. Everything exposed. Pure truth. When you talk about light, light in its sense of what light in the Bible is knowledge. You, we talk about shed a little light on the subject, would you? You know, we're talking about give me some knowledge, give me some know-how. He's perfect knowledge. There was, when Jesus got done, whenever he said, you can't add to it. Whenever he gets done talking about it, you're like, uh, uh, uh. You got one thing to say. Amen. What do you want to be said? Amen. That's all I can say. Because when he says it is such perfection, there's such truth, there's no need to modify it. There's no need to adjust it. There's no need to say, well, we can say that better. You won't say it better than he said it. Glory. Oh, no, sir. You are not going to add to the words of Jesus and improve upon his logic or improve upon his wisdom. When he says it, it's light. Just take it and live in it. Light is truth. It is knowledge. Light is morality. It's the opposite of darkness. Darkness is ignorance. Darkness is evil. Darkness is the lie. So truth is knowledge. Truth is good. Or I'm sorry, light is knowledge and night is light is good and light is truth. That's what light is all about. And he says, God is light. Now to make us sure what he's saying, he doesn't just say that this is just something merely about God. It is, he makes it very clear when he says God is light. He said in him there is no darkness. That means he's perfect light. See, we can show light, but there'll still be some little dark places in us. Still be some places that are tarnished, some places we haven't seen, some places that yet need polishing, some places that yet need to, to live under the light of God and, and have God's light shine upon him. We, we still have some ignorances. We still have some places in us that are, that are rough edges. And it doesn't mean the heart's impure or imperfect. It just means that there is a level yet to, that you've got to grow to and a level of maturity that you've got to arrive at, that you can be in a place uh, where your love and your heart is perfect before God. And he says, I'm telling you that God is light and there's not an ounce of darkness in him. All right, can you give me 10 minutes? I'm going to shut you down right here. I haven't preached that long. Three times repeated. Watch, watch this. Look at verse 6. First three words, what are they? Verse 8. Verse 10. All right. Now, verse 8 and verse 10 go together, deal with the same subject, but from two different angles. So here's John's premise. Here's his premise. God is light. Now, if you're going to talk about God, and you're going to talk about fellowship with God, and you're going to talk about loving God, and you're going to talk about living for God, let's begin with this premise. I've been with him. I've been there. I've seen him. You are not going to ever tell me that God endorses something that's wrong. This God is light. Okay? He doesn't endorse wrong. Now, so there's some objections to that. So John says, watch this, verse 6. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him, this is what he's combating, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Here's the first thing that someone says. John is going to reach out to these Gnostics, to these contradictors and gainsayers that are living contrary to the doctrine of Orthodox Christianity, and he looks at them and he says, I've been there, I know who he is, and I'll tell you the principal message God is light, and in him is there is no darkness at all. So if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in darkness, you're a liar. Why? Because God's light. He don't walk in darkness. The only way that you can have fellowship with God if you're walking in darkness is if God joins you in the darkness. Got a problem. I've been there, buddy. You weren't. Those cats probably weren't there. There's no darkness in him. He doesn't walk in darkness. He doesn't fellowship with darkness. He doesn't live in the darkness. He doesn't commune with the darkness. No, sir. He rebukes the darkness. He reproves the darkness. Matter of fact, the Bible said that he came and was light and the darkness comprehended him not. Ooh, hallelujah. Light came into the world and darkness. Literally, the idea darkness was unable to master him. Every time he got in the darkness, he turned the light on and they ran like cockroaches. He comes in, they come in there and say, hey, here's one caught in adultery, cast the first stone. What's he do turn on the light and they run out where are they at now which of you convinceth me of sin first argument that people want to get against living a life above sin is this you can live in sin and still fellowship with God and John says it ain't happening watch this verse 7 watch this but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. I want you to see that statement. Go back to verse 5. You're going to get it. What's the message? Somebody tell me. Mm-hmm. And? That's the message. God is light. God is light. God is light. If we, we walk in light, God is light. God doesn't walk in light. He is light. You see the difference? Let me explain it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. He didn't say if we walk in the light as he walks in the light. No. If God walked in light, it would mean the light was outside of him. That the light was shining on him. The light doesn't shine on God. He is the light. We walk in light. <laughs> Hallelujah. The light has to shine on us. Amen. And we, so we walk in the light as it shines. But God doesn't walk in a light. He is the light. Right. Woo, glory. But he said if we will walk in that light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. Right. In other words, don't come and tell me you're having fellowship with God while you're walking in darkness. But if you walk in light yeah. as he is in light, because that's where he dwells. He dwells in light. And if you will walk where he dwells, if you will walk in the light as he is in the light. Then you have fellowship with God. Then you have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now it's going to come the second objection. This will be our last one. These two go together, verse 8 and 9. So here comes the opposite now, or the other in the spectrum. First crowd says, well, I know God is light, but you know what? He'll walk with me while I'm in darkness. I can walk in darkness and still walk with God. John said, no, you can't. God doesn't walk in darkness. He walks in. He, he, he is light. And you have to walk in light where he is because that's what he is. 
Well, then the next crowd comes along and says, well, if we say we have no sin, that's what they're going to say. Well, I, I don't have any sin. Because John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Whoa, 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 John. But, but see, it's not a problem for me. So let's, let's, let's get this portrait. God is light, in him is no darkness. John says if you're going to have fellowship with him, you've got to walk in the light where he is. But in order for you to do that, you must be cleansed of your sin. Because your sin is darkness. I know it was the blood. <laughs> I know it was the blood. That's what we sang about, nothing but the blood. And John says, the blood will cleanse you of your sin so you can walk in the light. And now they pop back up. Oh, but I don't have any sin. Really? John said, Monk, line number two. Okay? Line number two. You've deceived yourself, buddy. There ain't no truth in you. It's when we confess our sins in verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And John dealt with two things here that God has to do. There is a cleansing from sin and there's a cleansing from sins. Sins is the act. That's the problem we have today. We only emphasize the forgiveness of the act. And we do nothing about the root that produced the act. John says he doesn't come just to get rid of the sins. He comes to get rid of the sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. When I come to God initially... I'm telling you, I need more than forgiveness for the bad things I've done. I need him to fix what made me, what took me down that road. I lived selfishly. I made myself number one. I need that sin dealt with in my life. I need to become dead to sin. Glory to God. I'm telling you, the blood has made a provision whereby you can be cleansed from sin. Oh, hallelujah. And then he says, if you will confess your sins, plural, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. That's your act. I like this. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's just be honest. There is no way in the world when you come to Christ to him, you can confess all of your sins and take your lifetime. You don't even know all the sins you committed. I mean, you've had 20 years of sinning every day. I mean, how in the world are you going to mark that down? No, whatever's prominent in your mind, whatever is bringing guilt to your soul, you confess it. But I'll tell you something. He doesn't just cleanse what you confess. He cleanses it all. Hallelujah. The Bible said he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Oh, no, if you're going to walk in the light of this king and if you're going to walk in the light of this God, I'm going to tell you something. He takes care of sin and sins so you can have fellowship with God. That's the whole point of God coming. He wants you to live with him. He wants you to walk with him. And I'm telling you, don't talk to me about hanging on to your sins and hanging on to your sin because this God will deal with it and get it done and get it out of the road. Yes. So you can live with him in light. Amen. Now you've got to understand that premise from the very get-go 
John lets us know without fooling around, God doesn't commune with sin. He wants fellowship with us. There's no darkness in him. He takes care of sin. He takes care of sins. And you've got to have it taken care of so you can walk with him. <laughs>